All right. Around the second century AD, there was a historian, actually the first church historian, his name was Eusebius, and he, write, he wrote down a very special story, and we're pretty sure it's true. It's, the story is not in your Bible, so this is one of these stories that's outside of the Bible. The story is about the apostle John. Today we're looking, if you want to get your Bibles out and get it ready, we're looking at 1 John uh, the, the Apostle John, John the Beloved, quite possibly John the Elder, the book that we're looking at today is anonymous, but it is so much like the Gospel of John. It's, it's, it's just in, in 2 John and 3 John, it's the same guy. Everybody's pretty much on the same page that it is, it is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so Eusebius tells this story about John the Beloved, the elder John, the disciple John, John the Revelator. Quite possibly before he got put on the island of Patmos and where he wrote down Revelation for us. Amazing, by the way. Open vision of God. It's brilliant. John had a, Eusebius tells us that John had a, a group of of people that he was discipling. Uh, what we know from the Johns is that he discipled numbers of small community groups, a lot like ours. Probably had a, he was probably ministering to or pastoring to a group of like our, our, our size. And sometimes they met in homes, but most likely they met in large homes. Like, like they had, wouldn't you like to have a courtyard the size of this building? That's what they did. They had these really, really cool courtyards. Go to the Getty Museum in Malibu. Not the new one. Go to the Malibu one. Go to the old one. It's so cool. That's where Paul probably preached in Ephesus, and that's where probably John preached, is in, in houses like that. Bless you. And so as John is ministering to groups of people, he latches on to a, a young man, and he begins to disciple this young man one-on-one. -on -one. And this young man begins to grow up in the faith. And, and John tells this young boy everything that he knows about Jesus. And keep in mind, John knew Jesus. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. First-hand account of Jesus. And so he's raising him up. He's giving him the Bible studies. He's telling him the stories. He's teaching him how to pray for the sick. He's teaching him how to, how to de develop his character and find out who his identity is in Christ. And this guy is flourishing, and he's growing, and he's excited about his faith. And so the Holy Spirit calls John to another church, another assignment, and he, you know, he takes off for a while and begins to minister somewhere else comes back years later. It's probably a community around Ephesus. Comes back years later, and, and he's talking to one of the elders that's in the church, and he's like, where's, where's my son? Where is, let's make up a name. Let's name this guy. Who are you going to name him? Bob. Where's Bob? Where is Bob? Where is my son that I have discipled all of these years? And the elder responds this way, your son is dead. 
And you can imagine, it's like, oh, no, where's his, where's his grave? Where's the tomb? And the elder's like, no, you don't understand. He's, he's dead in the spirit. He's not physically dead. He's not mostly dead. He's spiritually dead. He fell away from the faith. He has left his first love. And he's, he's fallen into the company of ruffians and bandits. He's went back to his old sinful ways. I'm so sorry, but your son is dead. It's like Anakin Skywalker, right? When Obi-Wan Kenobi lies to Luke Skywalker and says, yeah, you're, Luke, you know, Darth Vader killed your father. No, I mean, the death was, a, it wasn't a literal death, it was a figurative death. The same thing is going on. With Bob, he's not really dead. He's just fallen away from the faith. Now, here's, here's the thing. Um, Jesus tells us in the last days, in the last days there will be false prophets. In the last days, days there will be deception within the ranks. We talked about that last week when we went over the book of Jude. There will be people that will infiltrate. There will be liars and deceivers that are going to infiltrate the church. And they're going to do it through the spirit of religion. And it's going to deceive many. Many will be deceived. And the, the telltale sign is that they will say that Jesus is not God. That's how you will know. They'll give you all this other religious jargon. Oh, Jesus is a great man. He's a great teacher. He's a great philosopher. But he is not God. And that's kind of what was taking place. The last days, many will fall away from the face. And Jesus says it this way. In the last days, many of people's hearts will wane or their love will fade. Hmm? The love will fade is what Jesus says. Their love will, will wax. No, it will wane. Wane goes down, right? Your love will wane. Is that right? Am I getting, am I getting it right? What, what, the, the moon wax and wanes, right? Okay, waning, waning is going down. And so in the end days, the, the hearts of men and women will fall away from God's presence. I can't, I can't believe how relevant this story is for us. The early church, even though it was extremely exciting, we read the book of Acts, it was like, wow, I wish it was like this. But in, in, in John's his elder days... It's like our situation here. People that have once loved the Lord, they're falling away. Do you know people in your life who are once on fire for the Lord and now they're not? I heard a yip. Hmm? Just think about, I bet you can count it on all five fingers, maybe in your five toes, of people that were once really excited about God, that were serving the church, that were maybe even in ministry, and now they're their hearts have waned. They've lost connection. They've lost the love of the Lord. And so you need to get the story because it will help you understand John's heart. It will help you understand the scriptures that we're going to read in a minute. So John is like, oh, my, I, my son is dead. And this is what he says to the elder. Where is he? Where is my son? Where is he? Where's my disciple? It's like, you don't want to go where he's at. You don't understand. He is, he is in a gang. 
He is a thief. He is a murderer. He is a philanderer. He is a fornicator. You do not want to get anywhere near this kid. You don't understand. He is not the same. He has fallen away. He is dead spiritually. And John says, I don't care. Get me a horse. And this old man, an old man who's, he is he should be retired. He gets on his horse. He rides out into the Badlands. He finds this gang. And of course, they capture him. They beat him up. They try to rob him, but he doesn't have anything. And so, like, what are we going to do with this old man? Maybe we can, you know, maybe we can uh, ransom him or something. Let's try to make some money off of this guy that we caught out in the wilderness. And as, as they bring him into the gang, uh, you, John sees his son, his disciple. And this is how the story goes. The disciple sees John, the beloved, and he has all of his weapons and he throws his weapons down. And the very sight of John makes him run. He drops his weapons and he runs. And John breaks free from his captors and he starts chasing this kid through the badlands. And he's saying, stop, stop, stop. I will give my life so I could teach you one more time. So I could disciple you once more. You are not a thief. You're not a gang member. You're not a vagabond. You are, the, you are a child of God. Don't forget who you are. I am willing to give my life so that you will have one more chance. So this is the heart of the man who we're going to read this morning. All right, so get your Bibles out. Let's look at... I'm not putting them on the screen anymore. Bring your books. All right? <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our own hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it to, to testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father that has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that what we have seen and what we have heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. We write this to you to make our joy complete. He, what he is saying is this is reality. We have seen Jesus. We have touched him. We have heard him. And this is real. It's not fake. And so this morning, I am telling you right now, as crazy it may seem, this is real. The Bible is real. You might read these stories and like, what am I getting myself into? This is nuts. This is crazy. Like, I am understanding it with my rational mind. I understand the stories. I understand the biblical principles. But for real, am I really supposed to believe this? 
Not only do my friends and my neighbors, they think I'm crazy, but I'm even believing to think that I'm a little bit crazy for believing this stuff. Miracles, signs and wonders, putting others above yourself, loving unconditionally, forgiving, come on. How can I possibly do this? John is a different type of a book. John, unlike Paul's writing, is not linear. It is not um, logical. Paul is an amazing writer. We are, I mean, there's a reason why God tapped Paul. is because he, we can read it, we can understand it. It's almost systematic. It almost has a legal uh, aspect to it. You know, we've got the if and then aspects in all of John's writings. It flows linearly. But John is different. John is a mystical book. You cannot cherry pick this when you read it. You, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean by cherry picking? You know, if you're looking for something specific, like maybe you want to beat somebody up with the Bible, like you want, actually know what you want to say, and so then you Google it and look for the right scripture to, to blast somebody with, and you cherry pick John, you cannot do it. Because it is not a linear book, it is a circle or a book, and the way that it is written, it, it brings in amplification with the truth that is being communicated. This book's style is amplification. It talks about three major themes. It talks about life, how to live. It talks about truth, and it talks about love. And each time, each time he brings it up, it gets louder and louder and more intense and more intense. And the whole purpose of this mystical book is to move you into experiencing the love of God, that it is real, that it is tangible. It is not a myth. It's not funny stories. It is life-changing. When I was reading John, I was like, this is, something's really familiar with this, this language and with this passion. And the the book that it reminds me of is an Old Testament book. It's Song of Songs. Remember when we did that one? Remember Song of Songs? Song of Solomon, if you will? Mm, yeah, I'm not quite sure why that made it in the Bible, but it did. Uh, Song of Songs is erotic love poetry. Like, in context, you wouldn't let your kids watch it on TV. It's... But it is extremely experiential, extremely passionate. And the love that is expressed uh, takes your understanding of reason and of logic and of truth, doesn't get rid of it, but it says, boom. You want truth? Here it comes. Not only do you understand it logically, you are going to experience it, and you're going to experience the love of Christ. All right. Chapter 2 talks about the, again, this is, this, the style is amplification. So he uses strong imagery, light and dark. You were once in the darkness, and now that you are walking in the light. And where there is light, darkness has to flee. 
you are either in the light or you are in darkness. This is an important, I mean, again, it's very stark terms. He actually uses hyperbole. There is no gray area in, in regards to what is truth. This is what's probably even more difficult. Either you are a Christian or you're not. You are a sinner or you are not. Uh, our Greek idea of duality does not apply to the gospel and our relationship with Christ. What do I mean by duality, by the Greek idea? You all maybe don't understand what I'm talking about, but you all understand it culturally. That is the idea of, well, sometimes I'm, I'm good, sometimes I'm bad. Hmm? I have a little good angel that sits on one shoulder and a little bad angel that sits on the other shoulder, and they're always, you know, talking. And that ain't the Bible, folks. If you accept Jesus into your heart, and if that light enters into your being, there is no darkness. You cannot be a Christian and be possessed by the devil. It is impossible. Maybe you could be a Christian and be mentally insane, but you cannot be possessed by a devil. Not possible. I reject any theology that says... I am afflicted by evil spirits, and I am a son and a daughter of God. That's a contradiction. It's a lie. It's not true. Where there is light, there is no darkness. The day destroys the night. The night divides the day. Break on through to the other side. It, see, most of you got that. That's not in the Bible either. <laughs> I am so glad people got it. If you are Gen X and below, you got that joke. Try to run, try to hide. Break on through to the other side. <laughs> I feel so good. I took a risk on that. I'm like, oh, man. So John begins to amplify. He begins to show us that when we are in the light, there is no darkness. When we accept what Jesus did on the cross for us, we are no longer sinners. Hmm? I think we have to get this into our heads. You're not a sinner anymore. Maybe you're a Christian that blew it, but you are no longer a sinner. We've got to quit this. We have to quit this in order to, to move forward into God's calling into our lives. We have to quit believing each and every day that I'm a sinner saved by grace. You need to quit beating yourself up. There is no more darkness in you. Right? This is what the Bible says. Maybe that's not your experience. Well, just get over it. Get over it and get in line with the, what the word of God says. You're no longer a sinner. You have been called in, remember, the, remember this one, I talked about this one a couple weeks ago, holiness. Most of us believe that we're Christians, but how many believe that we are holy? Nobody believes that, but unfortunately, that's what the Bible says about us, that, he, we, that we are holy, and you cannot be 80% holy and 20% wretched. 
right? You cannot be 80% saved, 20% not saved. Um, I'm either in love with my wife or I'm not. There is no degree of love that I have for her. Our water is an issue, right? We want to make sure that we're drinking clean water. How would you like it if I gave you a cup of glass of clean water? I say it's 98% pure, and the other 2% is poop. (laughs) How would you feel about drinking that? Right? That's not who we are. That's not how God sees us. Here's the thing. You cannot earn your holiness. You cannot go to class to become more holy. You cannot work to become more holy. Your good deeds and your Bible memorizations and, and you're feeding the poor and you're praying for the sick, that does not make you holy. What makes you holy is the word of God that gets spoken into you. It is, holiness is a benediction. It is a blessing. This is grace. Light and dark. And now he talks about love. Love. Chapter 3, how great is the love the Father that has lavished on us. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Do you see where the language begins to change a little bit? This is, I mean, I don't know, maybe it doesn't hit you this way, but for the ancients, they were like, What? No, this is extravagant love. This is why it's connected. This is why I connected it to the Song of Songs. Because God is lavishing his love on us. I think that we begin to think that we get saved because we love God. Right? Like that, like that is the that is the condition, that is the motivating factor. That, that's what brings us into salvation, is that we love God, but that is not true. The reason why we have received salvation is because he has first loved us. Our love actually has absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. Our love for God has nothing to do with it. It is his love for us that gets us into eternal bliss. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, exclamation points. And that, and that is what we are. It does not say how great is God's anger for us that he has beat us down so that we shall be called sinners saved by grace. It doesn't say that. But that's how we believe. No, 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 no. Because of his love, because of his love that was lavished on us. That is what we are, children of God. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Dear friends, we are children of God, and that what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that... When he appears, ready for this, we shall be like him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Hope, belief, faith, that's the work of God right there. That's what you have to do. James says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, you idiots. It's that doesn't say that. Again, I'm making stuff up. But that's what he says. That's the tone of the letter. It's like, you guys are idiots. Wash your hands, you sinner. Purify your hearts. You are double-minded people. So how, if Jesus saves us, how do we wash our own hands? We believe by faith. We put our hope and our trust in God. That is the only way. That is the only way that we can purify ourselves. You cannot work to purify yourself. You can't do enough good deeds to purify yourselves. Uh, remember back in the day, back in the 70s, when we had Pope on a rope? The Pope on the rope soap, right? It's kind of that idea. When you purify yourselves, you have to do it with Jesus. You have to choose, choose hope and faith. You have to choose to let him be the balm. You have to let him be the lather, the, the soap, the cleansing agent that cleanses you. And you have to actually let Jesus do the work. Again, once again, the hardest thing that we can do is actually to believe this stuff. But we're not wired that way. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Your translation might say, behold. Does anybody say that? I have a behold. I have another behold. Need more beholds? I got a behold back there. What's the big deal about the behold? It's because John is talking. He is talking about, you know what, the Christian community, we know this stuff, the Christian community should love one another. No duh. Um, you have to have faith in God to enter into his kingdom. No duh. And so the reason why it's amplified, the reason why it might not seem a big deal to us, the reason why there's exclamation points in my Bible when it says, how great is the love of God, and when your Bible says, behold, is because John is moving from a communication aspect into a full-blown experience when he is writing. There is a difference. What Paul is moving into, there's two points. You want a point sermon? I got two points for you. Paul, I mean Paul, John is moving us into an idea about God, about knowing God. And as he is writing, he begins to have a divine experience with God. He is having an encounter with God. First, he starts off writing about God. This is how you know God. You be nice to each other. You forgive. Uh, you love one another. You walk in the light. You do good things. This is how, this is what Christians, this is what normal people should do as Christians. Quit being idiots. And then as he's writing, he's like, bam, behold, oh my gosh, right? This is cool. He is having a religious experience as he is writing this. He, is going, he has shifted. This is why the book is mystical. He has shifted from knowing God to knowing God in the biblical sense. That's, a, that's a, like a seminary joke. 
It's a, it's a theology nerdy joke. Because when you, whenever the Bible, whenever you're reading it, and it says, you know, Adam knew Eve, like he didn't know, she, he didn't know information about Eve, he didn't meet Eve, no, he had carnal knowledge with Eve, he had intimate relationship with Eve. So what he's telling us is like, you could know stuff about God, but that does not mean that you know God. That's the point. Maybe you know stuff about God, but do you know God? Do you have an intimate song of songs relationship with God? Do you know about love or are you just experiencing love? There's a difference. I can give you the, the Webster's definition of what love is or I can experience it. Which is better? Which is harder? <laughs> no, you see, understand that we just, we're okay with just knowing about God because in our gut, in our soul, in the reality, we know that actually to experience love is dangerous. To experience God is, takes a risk. To experience love on any level, think about your own, you know, the first time you fell in love in junior high. Remember how dangerous of a season that was? To be vulnerable to, you know, the cute girl or the cute guy that probably doesn't like you, and thank God you didn't marry that person, right? Um, do you remember the risk? And do you remember the pain of the rejection of that love? C.S. Lewis says that true love ultimately hurts. What does that mean? If you allow God to love you, he will hurt you in a good way. It will hurt so good. It's like, you ever got a big giant scab and you ripped it off? And it hurt, but yet it felt so good. Or is that just me? Is that weird? That's not the same thing. Okay, that's not the same thing. Um, all right, let's just go back to Bob. Let's go back to the story of Eusebius, John's encounter with his disciple whom he loved and trained and worked and dedicated so much time for. And when Bob sees John enter into his, you know, his band of merry men, whatever, the, the ruffians, you know, the bad guys there, think about the, that, uh, the cartoon Tangled, those guys. As he enters in, the reason why the kid dropped his weapons and ran and why he was chased down in the desert by an old man, the reason why he ran is because he felt God's love once again and it hurt like Hades, and so he ran. His vulnerability. I mean, he could have killed John in a half a second and it would have been over, but because he experienced God's love, he could not pull the trigger and get rid of the old guy, right? Because love is powerful, and yet it hurts so bad. So God's calling you into a type of pain. It's the good type of pain. 
It's the good type. It's the type that makes you uncomfortable. It's the type that makes you vulnerable. All right, so I hope you see this. John is having an experience here. He's saying there is a difference between just knowing about God and knowing God in the biblical sense, knowing God in a relationship, in an intimate relationship. And I think that most of us are just completely okay just knowing facts about God instead of actually letting God into our heart. Verse 11 says, This is the message you heard from the beginning. He's just reminding them about what they already know. He says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, and he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life. That's another contrast. Because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. That's a tough one, right? If you do not have the ability to love your brothers and sisters, you continue to remain in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Jesus said something like that. And if you know that no murderer has ever entered into life. Okay, so this is, he's getting into the very practical stuff, but basically he says this. We learned this from last week in Jude. Do not choose the way of Cain. And you might think, well, that's really easy because I'm just not a murderer. But see, that's not the way of Cain. That is the manifestation of Cain. Cain was Adam's uh, firstborn who spilt the first blood on the planet. You're like, yeah, I just, I'm, not that, I'm not a violent person. But here is the way of Cain. Because Cain was a religious person. He is somebody that knew about God. He sacrificed to God. He gave God a sacrifice. So he had knowledge of God, and yet he did not love God because he did not give God his first fruits. Cain was a religious person who brought his offering that he made with his own hands by developing his crops. See, the way of Cain isn't necessarily murder. The way of Cain is spiritual territoryism. That's like a, I just made up a word. Spiritual territoryism. It's like a George Bush thing. (laughs) If you own a plot of land, you own it, and that is your territory, that is your place. You paid for it. And here's here's the distinction. Okay, point one is we have to, to, the point one is there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And my prayer for you today, and again, I cannot, I cannot teach love into you. It has to be caught. Wouldn't it be amazing if I could just make you love God? I said this once again, once, a few weeks ago. The greatest gift that God gave humanity was our ability to choose to return his love. The second greatest gift was Jesus. 
but we have the ability to choose to love him. And I cannot teach you how to love God. You have to catch it. You have to experience for yourself. I cannot, again, I can't teach you how to do it. You have to do it. You have to catch it. The best I can do is pray that you get it. The way of Cain says, this is mine. This is my offering, Lord. I deserve a blessing in return. That's what he's saying. What does that mean? Um, My parents always made me work. Like, in retrospect, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, they just had me so they could have a personal slave. Right? I just, we just worked. We're always painting a bedroom. We're always, you know, doing apartments. We're always, we were always working, always putting our hands to something. And I remember the day that I, I, I first got a real job where I got a W-2. I remember the first time, uh, so I was cleaning carpets, I think is what it was. The first time I got a real check that had taxes taken out. And, you know, I worked for two weeks, three weeks, and then one day I got my very first check. And I, I remember to this day, I remember this feeling when I got my first check. Open up the envelope, pull it out. I'm like, oh, they paid me. I have never been paid before in my entire life. They actually paid me to do this. Oh, my God, I'm so blessed. I am so honored that I had the opportunity to do this and get paid. You remember that feeling? Then a few years later, you open up your check and like, right? They, my boss owes me. I am not getting paid what I am worth. You remember this feeling? This is the spiritual reality of what John is dealing with. This is our spiritual reality here and now because believers, we do not understand grace. If you believe that God owes you something, you are in the way of Cain. He doesn't owe you jack. You get to be his child for free. You get heaven for free. He lavishes his love on us. I was blown away by my first check. It built in wonder. Wonder, awe. I felt so loved that my employer gave me a check. The two points. One that you have to know God in the biblical, intimate. Song of songs sense. Not just know about God. It's because you know God doesn't make you a Christian. That might be very difficult for you to hear. Just because you know things about God doesn't mean that you're going to heaven. I'm sorry. Knowing him intimately does. Number two, true Christians, not just church attenders, but true Christians 
are always marked by wonder. Are they, they're like, oh my gosh, behold, I am saved. Oh my gosh, Jesus paid my debt and I did nothing for it. Oh my gosh, he views me as sinless and holy. He wants to bestow this on me. He wants to grace me, he wants to bless me. I don't understand it. I have read all the letters of Paul. I have gone through all the systematic theologies, and I am still bewildered and perplexed and captivated by the extravagance of God's love on me. True believers know God intimately. True believers are marked by wonder. Their love has not grown cold. You see? Let's get the band come up to the front. Because I can't, I, this, is, this is as far as I can go. I cannot teach experience. I can only pray that you receive God's love. In chapter four, the most profound thing that is ever written, says that, he says it twice. He says, God is love. If you have ever had the ability to love anything in your entire life, maybe you love chocolate chip cookies, maybe you love poodles, maybe you love your kids, maybe you love your spouse, the only reason why you have the ability is because God is inside of you and God is love. Love is not a choice, love is a person and he is in you. For John, God and Jesus were the same person. And who else would know but Jesus' best friend? Right? That's who he was. He was the closest to Jesus intimately. He knew him intimately. He knew that he was loved by God. He knew that he, John is the only one that says God is love. So if you're ever wondering what God is, that is the most powerful statement in the universe. The most powerful force in the universe is God's love for you. Unconditionally, he loves you and he's going to lavish this on you. Okay, would you stand with me? We're gonna close in prayer. If you need further prayer for whatever reason whatsoever, if you just want to experience God's love, there will be some prayer partners that will meet you in the back over here or maybe in the front up here. I just want you to, I want to encourage you to take a step of faith to walk in light, to walk in hope, and just to receive God's love today. If you don't think that you're worthy for God's love, you've you got to get out of that system of the way of Cain. You are worthy of God's love because he created you. You are his masterpiece. And he wants to lavish you with his love this morning. Heavenly Father, right now, we just thank you that you are a good and loving Father. And we, just, we identify with the word that was spoken to us from your word. From John, the young disciple, who said... For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
Whoever believes in him will not die, but will have everlasting life. And the character of John, when he's an old man, runs the young man down in the desert, says, God loves you. I'm willing to give my life for that truth. The old John that said, God is love. Continue to walk in light. Continue to walk in truth. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you just seal this moment. I pray that you will just lavish us with your love. That you will be, God, we know that, that you are the songs, songs, husband, the bridegroom that is knocking on the door of our hearts, where maybe we're, our hearts have grown cold to your affection, where we don't, we, we don't view you, we don't view ourselves as the object of your affection anymore. God, I pray right now that you'll restore unto us our first love in the name of Jesus, God. Give us this gift of faith, this gift of hope that just continues to believe in your word. Give us the ability to grow and to mature, to step into our identity as children of God, daughters of Zion, sons of thunder. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.